Well, I'll be goddamned back in business, and ain't it grand? Let the good times roll. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Sondheim on Adderall, another bonus episode. Now I know what you're thinking. Chris, there's no way that you have more bonus content for me. You you were so generous to give me that last bonus episode, that endless, unlistenable ramble-a-thon that was the bonus episode that last came out about the Sondheim anthology shows. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve another one. Well, you do. You are enough. And I have a bonus episode for you. Now, just when you thought there was nothing left to talk about, since I never did uh, that little handful of Sondheim shows that I never did, and if you're a long-time listener, you know what those shows are. I'm not going to go through them again, because who gives a shit? Um, here's Here's what happened. Sondheim is alive and well in Los Angeles in 2023. There's been some Sondheim content. There's been some stuff going on. And, uh, fool that I am, I've been buying tickets to all of it and seeing all of it. And I figured that there was enough that I should uh, just get on and sort of knock them all out and give a little uh, (laughs) progress report, status report on all the Sondheim shows, concerts, etc. that I've seen this year. Because, um, I, I talked about a couple of them. I think that during the run of the first season, I did see Sunday in the Park with George and a little night music at the Pasadena Playhouse. I talked about them in passing. I didn't really get into detail. I'll get into a little more detail here. I know the public has been clamoring for more details uh, and to get my review on uh, shows that were done theatrically months ago that nobody will ever see again or care about again. But I also need to tell you that I went and saw the Broadway tour of Into the Woods at the Amundsen, and most recently, and perhaps most importantly, last Sunday at the Hollywood Bowl, I saw a little something called Everybody Rise, a Sondheim Celebration! Now you know how I feel about Sondheim Celebrations. Anyway, I went and saw one, got some thoughts on it. And I'm going to talk about him here. It's been a while since I've gotten on the microphone. I'm uh, feeling a little rusty, to be honest with you. Feeling a little out of sorts with the microphone. A little uh, life update. I've, I've had some much-needed free time recently. I, uh, my, after my school semester ended, I spent a lot of time finishing an album. And I'm going to tell you about that album. Uh, I'm going to do a little synergy here, a little cross-promotion. I record music under the name Compassion Fatigue, and uh, these are just original songs, non-musical theater songs, uh, that I release in album form. Uh, It's a band with one member and one principal songwriter, and that is me, and it's called Compassion Fatigue, and I released an album last month called Attention Deficit Spending. Now, the reason I'm talking about this is uh, because... You know, a big part of the Sondheim on Adderall experience <laughs> last uh, season, season one, was um, my whole thing that I'm not going to promote any of this. It's just going to be, you know, out there in a vacuum and I'm just going to, you know, I, I got that self-promotion issues. It's been a topic of conversation with my therapist and couples therapist recently. And... When I released this album, so I finished it and I released it into the streaming services and it's like a two week delay on that, right? Uh, I use Root Note, that's the free 
program that'll do that for you. Release your music on the Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, all those other things. And during those two weeks, I had a crisis of uh, confidence and wondering, like, what is the point of all this? I work so hard at these things. And I just sort of put them out and I don't really promote them because I have emotional problems when it comes to telling people about things that I've made or podcasts that I've hosted. So I was really down about it, like really down. And I was thinking like, maybe I should just stop because this is pathetic. This is like having a cable access show. Um, And as if on cue, I blew up on TikTok uh, the day the album came out. To my surprise, I had uh, sort of written off TikTok as a thing that did anything. (laughs) Uh, I was happy to just be a TikTok audience member and uh, watch funny videos and such. But, um, you know, when I write songs and I do little videos of the songs that I write, I throw them onto YouTube, I throw them onto Instagram, I throw them onto Facebook, and I throw them onto TikTok. For some reason, I didn't do anything differently. I did not, uh, you know, follow any series of steps or do any sort of uh, promoted posting thing. And I woke up uh, Friday morning last month uh, to a lot of notifications. And then as the day went on, just more and more and more and more and more. And now I've got uh, thousands of followers on TikTok when I had exactly 10. I had 10 followers uh, prior to this album being released which also then permeated and made the Spotify numbers go up and the Apple Music numbers go up. And um, all of a sudden, there's more than 12 people uh, listening to this thing that I made. And so it made me uh, think, okay, maybe you're on the right track after all. Uh, And it was was just the shot in the arm I needed. Um, That doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to tell anyone about this episode of this podcast. Or if this... I'll talk about this more at the end. Uh, the continuation of this podcast or doing any more podcasting in the future. Uh, um, Let's tease that for the end, guys. Um, Let's not talk about it just yet. Anyway, saw some things. Uh, Sondheim Celebration, Everybody Rise at the Hollywood Bowl, Into the Woods of the Amundsen, and then those two shows at the Pasadena Playhouse. I I alluded to them, but I want to talk about them more in detail. Um, I will abstain from further shitting on that poor community theater production of Assassins that I was so mean about on the Assassins episode because, uh, you know, I didn't say where it was or who did it or anything like that. I am going to name names in this one because these are all professionals and I, I, uh, my opinions don't matter, but, uh, you know, uh, do better the people that I have (laughs) negative opinions towards uh, that are professional Uh, and I'm going to call you out for it and uh, here we go. But first, let's head to the Sondheim on Adderall news desk. Now, uh, this is from a couple weeks ago, but hey, uh, the the show's been on hiatus, so let's talk about it. Sondheim's townhouse in Turtle Bay, Manhattan, is for sale. If you have $7 million, you can get yourself a nice five-story townhouse that Sondheim lived in for much of his career, the majority of his career. This is a five-story townhouse in Manhattan, Turtle Bay. If you don't know where that is, it's like uh, East... Was that the lower, upper, east side? It's on the east side, uh, either upper or lower. Um, I don't remember which or really where the dividing line is on that. It's near Times Square. It's it's near the United Nations, certainly. I looked at it on the Google Maps. I was curious. Anyway, I'm not going to buy this house, obviously, but it was great to look at the photos of this house. The the, the music studio is there where all the magic happened. He bought it in 1960. 
um, because of the Gypsy movie deal. He had a couple bucks in his pocket. He's like, let me buy some real estate. He bought it for $115,000. $115,000 in 1960. For sale for $7,000,000 now. So there you go. So yeah, the, the photos are great. It's, it's very lush. Um, there is no sex dungeon, as it turns out, but they did mention it in the article I read, the fact that they did make mention of the sex dungeon, which really, I think is hilarious. I had never heard this rumor that Sondheim had a sex dungeon in his house, in the basement. I do remember there was a New York Times article, maybe 10 years ago or so, where they asked him about it, and I just love that he had to say, that's ridiculous, I don't have a sex dungeon. Anyway, that came up in the article because uh, they were talking about the basement, and they said uh, it is not, in fact, a sex dungeon. All right, then maybe you know, maybe it was. Maybe uh, he had somebody do a little cleanup on the dungeon to, to protect his legacy. Funny thing is about you know townhouses like that, like really luxury townhouses in New York City, is they just don't have the oomph on the exterior that you know a rich person's house would have in other cities. It's not like a mansion with a gate. It just sort of looks like... It. It's the same with San Francisco. It's like being rich in either of those cities. Okay, it's great because then you're in this vibrant city, but you can't really uh, wow anybody with the outside of your house. You can't have anyone, uh, you know, drive through your gate and look up at your mansion. So, yeah. Near United Nations. Uh, directly across the street from the Consulate General of Peru. I'll tell you that much. I, I figured that out by doing the street view. <laughs> I was like, who are all those people milling around outside that house across the street? And then I saw that uh, that was the uh, consulate. And uh, some Peruvians outside trying to, you know, I don't know, get their passports. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, so there you go. Another sort of thing that emerged recently about Sondheim. So, uh, well, first of all, and this is related to the house. So it's a five-story townhouse. When he bought it in 1960, he rented the top three floors in order to pay the mortgage. He lived next door to Catherine Hepburn at the time. And uh, he one night when he was uh, writing Ladies Who Lunch and singing it, he went outside and she was glaring at him for being too loud with the Ladies Who Lunch. Little did she know that it was uh, going to be uh, one for the ages. <laughs> so anyway, there, there, there's this book that came out, uh, Mary Rogers' autobiography, Shy. I think it came out last year. Anyway, my uncle gave me a copy of it and I lent it to my sister. And I read a, I read a uh, excerpt from it. I haven't really dug into the full thing here, but... Um, this is interesting. So Sondheim was very cagey about, and for good reason, you know, cagey about his sexuality and his sexual preference because he was 91 years old when he died and he came of age in a completely different time. Now, apparently, so Mary Rogers and he were friends, lifelong friends. Mary Rogers is, of course, Richard Rogers' daughter. Richard Rogers, the asshole who's very talented that wrote the Carousel Waltz and other beautiful uh, pieces of music. So, um, they were going to have like a marriage of convenience because he was gay, um, sort of uh, on an unspoken level. It, it, it was a thing in the, back in those days, in the 50s, uh, late 50s, early 60s, where um, it's, he, he was going to a shrink who was pushing him to have a quote-unquote normal relationship. Um, so, you know, presumably he told his shrink that he had done homosexual things or had homosexual thoughts and his shrink said like, okay, well, we got to turn you. We got to get you, uh, with a lady. And he was 30 years old at the time. 
And, you know, it's it, it, on one level, it does seem kind of unfair to have this information out there now when he didn't talk about it, really. He did come out of the closet at the age of 40 in 1970, which is, you know, uh, pretty uh, ahead of the curve, I would say. But, um, so yeah, he, he asked Mary Rogers to move in with him in this luxury townhouse that he had just bought with the gypsy money. But he, like, wasn't very nice to her. He would kind of, he would invite her to parties with him and then ghost her. And it was a weird thing where he'd ask her to sleep over and then they'd lie side by side in bed and not touch each other. Because he was gay. Uh, Sondheim was gay. Um, another interesting thing was like all of his collaborators on West Side Story were going through the exact same thing. Leonard Bernstein, Arthur Lawrence, Jerome Robbins, they were all going to psychologists that were telling them, no, 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 you gotta, you gotta stop doing this, man. You, you gotta, uh, find a lady and try to have a normal relationship so that you stop having these, uh, impure thoughts. And that's just, it's really wild that there are people still alive among us that grew up in that kind of paradigm, right? Uh, my mother, interestingly enough, her prom date was this guy, uh, she talks. She used to talk about this all the time, who was like, uh, speaking of Gypsy, uh, was like a musical theater guy, good dancer named Freddie, and he danced to um, All I Need Is The Girl from Gypsy. And she like fell in love with him, invited him to prom, but then like, he said, oh, I can't be with you because I'm having these impure thoughts, these bad, perverted thoughts. And uh, it broke her heart. And then cut to, let's call it 40 years later, this gentleman is my ballet teacher at UCLA. Um, and I find this out because my mom tells me, which is weird, like during my five minutes at UCLA before I dropped out and I took a ballet class, which was required by all musical theater. Just the, the most obviously gay human being in the world was the ballet teacher, and he was a little bit older, and it was my mother's uh, prom date. And he once I told him, he begged me to get her to come say hello to him, but she never did. And uh, I'm not going to say that's why I flunked out of UCLA, but it didn't help. Thanks, Mom. One more thing. Just kidding. That's not really how that went. So anyway, um, yeah, Sondheim's gay. <laughs> Came out at 40. Did not have a live-in partner until he was 60 years old, 61 years old, the exact same year that the musicals stopped being good, which goes to show that his asexual loner status may have been crucial to the genius. But good for him. He gave us enough. He deserved to, uh, to live with that guy, who then broke up with and then married a millennial, married a guy my age in uh, 2017. All right, folks, I think that's enough uh, preamble. Let's get into what we're going to talk about today, which are these Los Angeles performances of Sondheim content. Number one, everybody rise, a Sondheim celebration at the Hollywood Bowl. Okay, so this is a... Uh, I mentioned in the last episode that my aunt had bought tickets to this for us. Um, my, my sister was in town with her children. We went as a big group. Now, I don't know how many listeners I have that don't live in California. I don't know if I have any listeners, period. But the Hollywood Bowl. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been there. 
I, it's fairly uh, f- uh, famous venue. It's a big uh, bowl in the middle of trees. <laughs> and it's interesting. So I, I, I've been going to the Hollywood Bowl since I was a kid. My grandmother used to take me to just whatever was playing. Usually it was just like classical music. She'd make a picnic and we'd have a picnic and then sit there and solemnly listen to classical music and then go home. The thing about going to the bowl is it's like, it's not about the show, really. It's kind of just about the place and the ambiance. It's not the best place to focus on something that you really like. It's good to go have a picnic and be a part of history. But um, it's not a good place for a concert of intimate solos and duets, which is what this was. It's, um, you don't want to see something you really care about there, is what I'm saying. Uh, I, I, I enjoyed, I saw Fleet Foxes there. I enjoyed that. I saw Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. Those were both like larger than life things. Like they felt like they were big enough for that stage. But if you see, you know, a Neutral Milk Hotel or a Daniel Johnston or a Sondheim Celebration, it's it can seem weird. Like I'm really just way back watching this on a TV. And even if I was way up front, like it's hard to, uh, it's hard to own that stage really, when uh, it's so fucking big. It's like a stadium situation. So I went, like I said, I went with a big group. I went with my sister and her husband and her two sons and my partner Shailene and my aunt and my uncle. We all went, uh, I made a picnic, uh, used my picnic basket that I uh, bought and, um, you know, made homemade fried chicken and a nice strawberry salad. I left the dressing at home and then was very upset about that. But then the moisture from the strawberries themselves uh, made up for it. Everybody loved this show. Everybody I went to see the show was like really on board and loved it. And it's not that I didn't love it. It's that I felt nothing. And it's not the show's fault. I think that I've worn myself out with these songs. Um, a lot of them were in the Sondheim on Adderall playlist, which if you haven't listened to that and you are a uh, Spotify subscriber, go ahead and check that out. Um, I'll put a link in the... Th- maybe I won't. I'll, I might not remember to do that. Look on old episodes. There's a link in the fucking show notes for this. I think that after this... Since I've been retreading all of this music and I listened to it a lot this past spring, doing this podcast, prepping for the podcast, uh, etc. Like, they're, they've gone the way of Christmas songs and Beatles songs for me. It's like, okay, I recognize this as good, but if I hear it now, it just is nothing. It doesn't go through my brain anymore because I've heard it too many times. Now, as I've said exhaustively, I don't like it when you sing these songs with their context removed. If you want to hear way too many examples of that, listen to the last bonus episode about the Sondheim anthology show, Side by Side by Sondheim, putting it together, things of this nature. Uh, I also, of course, do not like these songs when they're sung in tuxedos and evening gowns, which is exactly how they were done here. You know, like, sure, sounds sounds nice. You know, your voices are nice. But I want to be told the stories. And Sweeney Todd did not have a cummerbund. Last time I checked. And Mrs. Lovett did not have a uh, whatever women wear. <laughs> uh, you know, a gown. Like, that's a problem for me. So what ends up happening, usually, is they will mostly use bottle songs. Which, uh, for our purposes here, a bottle song just means a song where you can just sing it wherever and you don't need to be, like, told a story ahead of time to enjoy it. A story such as, this is a barber who cuts throats and is out for revenge. So, um, 
Anyway, you got a lot of the usual songs in here, and I'll go through what these songs were. I won't maybe go song by song. I'll, I'll talk about most of them. Actually, I'm looking at my notes here, and it kind of is song by song. But God damn it, it'll be quicker than the last bonus episode, I promise. Um, Patty Lapone, the great Patty Lapone. I'm going to tell you something. I liked her in this more than I thought I would and more than I have in the past. Never seen her live before. Practically didn't see her live in this, but like I said, because I was so far back. Uh, you know, the cool thing about the Hollywood Bowl is she can't yell at you for having your phone out because there's too goddamn many of you. She can't see us all with our, with, with your, with your phones out. And uh, that's her thing, right? She, she screams at people when they take out their phone while she's singing. But uh, a lot of phones, a lot of phones, uh, once, especially once it got dark, you saw all those uh, lights from all those phones. I don't know if anyone's seen Bo is Afraid. Uh, I loved the hell out of that movie. Patti Lapone is in it. She does, she's great in it. And uh, her version of Being Alive, she sang Being Alive. That was her first song. Uh, I got a nice charge out of it. I enjoyed it. She's kind of like uh, carrying on the tradition of what Ethel Merman did. Where she's just like, uh, I, and I don't know, I'm not a vocal coach and I don't know, I don't have a lot of vocal training. I don't know exactly what it is she's doing, but like her throat is so open. It's like she's fucking depositing that song directly into your goddamn ear canals. And it's like you don't need to lean in. Like she's, she's, she's bringing it right to you. And uh, I like that. So, Patty Lapone. Uh, Brian Stokes Mitchell from uh, Ragtime. He was a hero of my adolescence. Uh, originated the role of Cole House Walker Jr. in Ragtime. What has he done since then? I know he did Kiss Me Kate, whatever. But, like, where did he go, really? Seems like he didn't have any more big uh, star turns after those two that I can think of. I'm sure he's done more, but... Anyway, um, I remember when Ragtime came out, uh, you know, I liked it at the time. I, I re-listening to it now. It's got some pretty terrible lyrics in it. And, um, you know, one too many crash, boom, bang, kapow standing ovations like back to back it's like, a little exhausting um so I, I remember at the time when it came out re reading an interview with him in drama log which then became backstage west which then just became backstage uh he was talking about how he found out about the d ragtime and the audition for ragtime in drama log and that made me think like wow i read the casting notices in drama log i, I can be <laughs> brian stokes mitchell someday so, um, anyway, there you go. Friends, Jerks Mitchell. Uh, Sutton Foster. <clears throat> She's a, uh, you know, a big, if you're a, a Broadway person and you know about Broadway people, Sutton Foster is a big deal. I like her a lot. And I don't necessarily want to like Sutton Foster, but I do. I, uh, I directed Anything Goes with fifth graders last year. And for research, I watched her version of it. And I think that she added a lot of joy and new life to a relatively dead show. You know, pardon me if you love Anything Goes. I think it's kind of dead. And she, as Reno Sweeney, made it fun. She seemed like she, she, seemed like she was having a good time. And you should, <laughs> the same thing here in uh, this Sondheim celebration. Also, uh, Violet in the whatever, the not the revival, but the revision of Violet in the 2000s. She played the title role in that, and I thought that was very good. At least the original cast recording, which is what I read. Or the revival cast recording. I don't know what the fuck you call it. Uh, so there's a drop-off after those three. There's six people in this, basically. So those are the three big names. Uh, after that, you got Skylar Aston, some slob named Skylar Aston, who I, 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 until I 
started reading about this. I did not recognize him at the time, but uh, he's you've seen him in things. Uh, Hamlet 2. He was one of the high schoolers in Hamlet 2, and I think he's like a musical theater kid, and I actually saw him in Into the Woods at the Hollywood Bowl some years ago as the baker, and I thought he was great until it got to No More, and then I thought he did not do the song No More Justice. That was my very, very important opinion about Skylar Aston. And then we got uh, Sierra Bojess. Is that how you say that? She did all the soprano stuff, and then Norm Lewis did all the kind of uh, baritone stuff. So there you go. There's our cast. Let's get into it. So right out of the gate, we start with the overture slash night waltz from Little Night Music. Boo! Waste of time. I sighed when that started. I knew it was happening once I heard the dun 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 la 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 Dolesville, baby. We don't need it. But then the orchestra did the night waltz and that's fine and that's pretty. Then, okay, then we get into what more do I need from Saturday night. And that's when you realize, oh, okay, we're kind of going in order here. We're going to go through his career chronologically, more or less. Obviously, they started with a uh, little night music, which is Mac in the middle. And then they went ahead and did Saturday night, a show we did not do an episode on, which was the first musical he ever wrote. And it was unproduced. And um, ironically, you know, Saturday night is a whole other world from this... Uh, tuxedo evening gown situation it's not like Sondheim was ever poor really he was from a divorced single mother but he was still breathing r- rarefied air but this first show is about you can see that it's like a young person being like this is me and my friends and we're hilarious and we're just fucking single people here in Manhattan and this is going to be great so um it's kind of just a uh, relationshipy musical i could be so wrong about that all i've heard are a few songs for what can you do on a saturday night alone who needs a view on a saturday night alone that's the title song there uh, on this uh, unsung sondheim album i heard that one on there and uh what more do i need is a lot of new yorky references on there and it's fine you know it's fine but there's a lot of good sondheim music and we can't get it all in, so why are we wasting time necessarily with the early stuff? Then we do a couple songs from Anyone Can Whistle. We do Everybody Says Don't. We do There Won't Be Trumpet. Okay, cool. Sounds good. Those both work as bottle songs, of course. Um, and we, like, we, we kind of skip completely over a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, just like you know history does nowadays. Uh, everyone likes to pretend like that one didn't happen, which, all right, fine, I guess. Then this gentleman, this Skylar Aston, comes out and does Finishing the Hat. Okay, you know, he did fine. He sounded a lot like Mandy. He did the Mandy voice thing. Whatever. Uh, Kind of forgettable. I don't really have anything to say about it. (laughs) So why am I talking about it? Then we get into... So then uh, Homie comes on stage. Brian Stokes Mitchell comes out. Uh, and he does something interesting. He does Getting Married Today. But he does all three parts himself. Which is weird. I'm not sure I love it. But to be honest, I'm happy for something new at this point. You know, he does the... Bless this day, pinnacle of life. But he does it an octave down. Sounds very much like how I just did it. But he's kind of acting like a drunk person toasting at a wedding. Let's say a drunk wedding toast. And then he transitions into Paul. And then he transitions into Amy. And it's like, okay, cute. I get what you're doing. And then it kind of wears by the end. It's like, um, eh, okay. 
but he did do a good job hitting all of the the notes on the th- and not half-assing with the then uh, I talked about it already. Patty Lapone comes out, sings "Being Alive." It's very good. Everything's open and huge. Uh, it's kind of her best performance of the night, and she gets it out of the way early. Not that the other ones were bad, but that was just a really good one. Then, um, so there's a couple of duets. This is a little out of order now, but they do "Too Many Mornings" from Follies and "With So Little to Be Sure of" from Anyone Can Whistle, which are pretty general, beautiful songs. Uh, that end up uh, in a lot of Sondheim concerts because they're general. They're love songs. And I don't know if it's just because I became a Sondheim fan in middle school, but I could do without both of these songs. Too Many Mornings is very beautiful, very pretty. Um, But, you know, Too Many Mornings, uh, Wishing and Pretending I'd Reach for You. It's just sort of, anybody could, I don't know. Sorry, I don't know, shit. Then we got Buddy's Blues. That guy, Skylar Aston, comes out again, you know, and it's not funny. It's just kind of like, okay, whatever, dude. This is, uh... Look, it's not his fault. It's not the show's fault. It's my fault. I'm A, a cynical prick, and B, uh, over Sondheimed at this point. Uh, I've had too much Sondheim in my head this year, 2023. Jesus Christ. We have a little uh, Sweeney Todd section where Brian Stokes Mitchell does his epiphany. And then with uh, Patti Lapone they do Little Priest, which is good. Uh, I explained this to my nephew before it happened. I leaned over and said, so this is a barber and that he kills people. And, and he's deciding. And here's where he's deciding to kill indiscriminately. And now they're him and the lady that bates the pies are going to uh, cook all the people into pies. And that's they're having this idea right now. And he it was his favorite part of the show. Because, you know, he's nine and he likes the idea of uh, murder, 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 murder. And uh, so there you go. Little priest. It's a good time. Um, you know, going through the set list here, then, you know, we got another hundred people. Honestly, I forgot how that went. I forgot uh, if that was good or whatever. It's just, uh, yeah, too many times. Uh, weekend in the country right before intermission. I wish I could, you know, everyone could have been given a rundown on that about who these people are and what they're singing about because fuck it's so good as an act one finale and it's not that good as an act one finale of a show where you don't know who the fuck the people are or who Desiree is or who Charlotte is or why they're even saying these things so then uh, you know at this point we all go use the restroom certainly uh, which if you've been to the Hollywood Bowl is a dicey undertaking you gotta go up a hill on one side or into a big crowd on the other side and I got a full leg cramp that was like worse than any leg cramp I'd ever gotten, and I had trouble walking. And then I, but then I sort of dealt with it, and then went back to my seat. And then we get into, okay, God, after intermission, Night Waltz Two. I hate this fucking song. Like, who would talk like? If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's the the sun won't set. Uh, not the sun won't. Ugh. It's the one where the people from the quintet are singing like. The sun sits high in the da, 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 da. Wait, is that a star? No, just the glow of a cigar. It's like people fucking like really wishing the sun would set and it would be nighttime, but then oh is it? Oh it isn't. Oh is it? Oh it isn't. Who cares? It happens every fucking day. Why are we so concerned? Do, do we think that the sun's not gonna set? It's gonna fucking set. Why are we wasting time? Also, it was dumb that that was the song right after intermission because the sun had already gone down and it was dark. Maybe they didn't think it would have. Maybe they dilly-dallied and got the timing wrong because that would have been cool if, like, the sun was setting when they uh, sang that. 
but they didn't. It was dark. Right after that, um, the opening notes of Send in the Clown starts, and somebody behind me in the audience, like, comes in his pants. Like, he, I forget what noise he made, but he's like, oh, yeah. Because <laughs> Patty LaPone's on stage, and, oh, Send in the Clowns. And what is there to be added at this point besides one's little personal idiosyncrasies of Send in the Clowns? Like, what's, what exactly is the point of singing Send in the Clowns now that everybody and their mother has sung it? Whatever. And she added her little things like, Me here at last on the ground, you in midair. That's uh, not exactly how it sounded, but... Uh, you in midair. Just a little slidey Patty Lapone thing. Then the two gentlemen sing Pretty Women, which is shitty without the story and the fact that it's a judge, and I'm not going to get into all that again. He did slit his throat at the end, like with his finger, uh, awkwardly. Then we get into a mashup of losing my mind and not a day goes by. Seems kind of sacrilegious, honestly. You know, uh, Sonam didn't write off on that. What uh, fucking Juilliard music student decided to mash those songs up together? It was fine. Uh, better than what followed, certainly, which was the flag song cut from Assassins. What the fuck are you doing? So weird. It's like, uh, out of context, it's just false patriotism. It's just... Uh, we think that things are bad, but then that flag goes by. And they had an American flag, like, up on the thing, and it wasn't even, it wasn't even any kind of, uh, you know, I think we were supposed to, um, believe it. Ugh. Bad. After that, uh, Sutton Foster comes out and does Moments in the Woods, and I really liked it. I like that Sutton Foster. It's hard to fuck that song up. It's a really great song. Moments in the Woods. Really smart. Really relatable. Really good song. Then here comes the ladies who lunch. All right, fine. You know, nothing new. Patty Lapone's been singing this song for nigh on 15 fucking years. Or I don't know the actual numbers on that. But they did change the lyrics. I don't know if that if that if they did that for Lady Company. But... Um, Here's to the girls who something, something. They didn't say play wife, basically. And then they didn't say keeping house but clutching a copy of life. They said keeping house but clutching a copy of time. And I forget what time rhymed with. But um, I don't know if it had to do with some gender thing that they didn't want to say play wife. I don't know. I don't know why it's changed. But uh, it happened while Stephen Sonnet was alive, so I assume that he was on board. If that even was this change that they meant to make. Or if Patty Lapone just uh, made a mistake. Fuck, I don't know. And then just like quick thinking rhymed it with time instead of life. That's unlikely. I don't think that's what happened. So, and also, you know, when she said, everybody, rise, rise, rise. You know, that's the title of the fucking show. And everybody was already ready to fucking rise. And so all of these motherfuckers rose. And I was just like, I'm not going to fucking rise. I didn't rise. Ha! <laughs> Take that. And then we're closing in on the end. We got Move On from Sunday in the Park with George. I didn't care about it because I didn't like this instant George, the single-serving portion of George. I didn't like it. They close it up with, you guessed it, Sunday from Sunday in the Park with George. Didn't get me this time. It got my sister. She cried because, you know, it was Sunday. Here's the thing. It was Sunday, and we were pretty much in a park. And guess what? George was there. 
That's my nephew's, uh, my other nephew's name, George. So uh, it was Sunday and we were, in fact, in the park with George. But you need to have that whole first act, first of all, for that song to be real resonant. And you can't have the six stars looking glamorous in front of the chorus choir busting solos on it. It's got to be all of the people in the painting singing uh, completely immersed with each other. Blah, 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 who cares? In summation, everybody rise. Uh, the Sondheim celebration. It sounded good. And it's always nice to get a full orchestra on the Sondheim songs. As concerts go, it was a good one because they didn't add a fake story to it. And there weren't even any little speeches. They didn't even have little blurbs. It was fairly straightforward. And I like this. But as all these concerts do, it just made me wish I was seeing one of those shows all the way through. And let me tell you something. I did see one of those shows one week earlier. Two weeks, maybe. Let's call it two weeks. I saw it two weeks earlier. No, week and a half. Uh, who cares? That's not important. What is important is that I saw Into the Woods at the Amundsen Theater. So this is a tour of the Broadway edition that was on Broadway last year. I was dead set against going to this because I have seen Into the Woods too many times. I mentioned this on my Into the Woods episode. I don't need to see it again for a while. I need to go on Into the Woods holiday. I need to get it out of my head. But I kept hearing from everybody that this is the best version ever of Into the Woods. My sister listened to my episode of Into the Woods and it inspired her to buy a ticket to the touring company of that when it came to San Jose and to bring her eldest son, Harold, to see it. I asked how it was. She said it was the best version of it she's ever seen. I was like, God damn it. Okay, I should at least get my name in on the ticket lottery on Today Ticks. And I put it in there and, you know, and I kept not winning and kept not winning and thinking like, well, maybe I should just shell out a couple bucks and buy fucking, you know, balcony seats. But then sure enough, ding, 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 I won the ticket lottery and <laughs> went and saw it uh, on a Thursday, Thursday before last. Uh, got tickets to it, went to go see it. So, um, yeah, I was in the sort of rear orchestra with uh, my girlfriend, Shailene. It had a very interesting set where there were little dollhouses suspended above the actors. It was actually really cool, really nice. They had an orchestra on stage. I didn't love that. Especially things like uh, the, the conductor had to turn around, like turn his head and watch the actors for cues from time to time, like the dropping of the beans, like the ding, 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 ding. That sucked. 16 minutes into this thing, I was like, oh, fuck, this is not permeating my skull. I'm screwed. I've seen this too many times. Damn it. Luckily, there were enough new flourishes and some really good performances that it did not, you know, it, it did, really did have the fresh takes that made, uh, and, and, and the fresh takes actually, most importantly, they were not extraneous and they didn't seem wrongheaded. And it wasn't just, for the most part, they weren't just changes for the sakes, for the sake of changes. Um, early on, there was like a weird edit where, I guess it wasn't weird, but uh, when they introduced Jack's mother, like Jack, on the other hand, had no father and his mother. Originally, it says she was not quite beautiful. And then this one, he's just sort of trailed off. He was like, and his mother, well, um, and I guess, you know, that's fine. I did think there were going to be a bunch of weird edits like that. There weren't really. Um, it was simplified, uh, you know, but not fucked with. It was really good. And that line, you know, I always wondered, more so as a kid, like if somebody plays like a 
fat character and is a fat actor, for instance, or, you know, a not beautiful person in this case, um, like, how does that person feel playing that? I played Brian in Avenue Q, and he gets called a fat loser idiot, you know, every five minutes in that show, and I uh, did not, my, uh, the, my, the woman I ended up dating for eight years, I did not, I, I made a point of not inviting her to that because we were early dating. And I didn't want her to come and see like, huh, maybe they have a point. Maybe he is fat. <laughs> so um, I always wonder about that. And I guess it's easy enough to take that out. And, you know, it, it is kind of puzzling why that line is uh, in there in the first place. It's funny, I guess. They used puppetry in this. Puppets. Um, which worked some of the time. Now I'm going to tell you something. It kind of bugs me sometimes when there's a puppeteer standing there. Speaking of Avenue Q, there's a few moments in that where it's supposed to be a scene between two people, but it feels crowded because there's a puppeteer. And even if they're wearing all black, it's like they don't disappear. It's not Sesame Street style where they're under a fucking table. It's like they're standing right there. Or, you know, in some cases in Avenue Q, like with Trekkie Monster, you got like two of them running the puppet. And then it's like, who are all these fucking people? So, yeah. Uh, the puppets. They had puppets. Gavin Creel as the wolf and Cinderella's prince was outstanding. Hilarious. So funny in a fresh way. Completely different from Robert Westenberg, which is also really funny. Um, but what was really impressive about Gavin Creel is like he knew when to leave things be. Like the Cinderella's prince has some really funny lines. That just there are already there in the writing. Like I was raised to be charming, not sincere, or like you must know that as a peasant. Like when when the line was doing the work for him, he just let the line be funny, and he didn't do. But then like he, every time he opened his mouth, it was a joy. I am not uh, current on who does things on Broadway anymore, but uh, I'm a fan of this young man, this Gavin Creel. Great job, Gavin Creel. Another highlight was uh, Kathy. Girati, I apologize. I don't know how to say that name. I assume it's like Irish or Gaelic or something. Katie. Sorry. And it's Katie. I do know how to say Katie instead of Kathy. Katie Girati as Little Red Riding Hood. Uh, Really funny. Also fresh. Sort of a new take on it. There was like one weird moment up top with the wolf. Where, and she said, good day, Mr. Wolf, where it seemed like she was like a grown woman that like already knew his bullshit. It was like, good day, Mr. Wolf. Like, uh, and that's not exactly how she did it. I'm not an impressionist, okay? So don't expect impressions. Anyway, she she did um, she didn't seem like uh, the, a, a young girl that was about to be duped. She seemed like a world weary woman who already knew the wolf's bullshit already. David Patrick Kelly played the narrator and mysterious man probably the best performance of this I've seen. It's easy to just sort of fly under the radar with this, but uh, I found out at intermission exactly who he was. He's He looks older now, so it's uh, I didn't recognize him, but he's from all the Spike Lee joints. Uh, he always plays like a crazy weirdo. Flirting with Disaster. I just rewatched that recently. He's in that. Plays the dad in Michigan, or the guy that he thinks is his dad in Michigan. And I he added a level of fun to it, but also... Um, the running away thing. Like he had, well, first of all, like he had like a funny new way of running away where he'd be like, oh, and then someone would turn and then he'd go, oh, and then he'd run away and haha, he did that a bunch of times. But then when he sings about running away in No More, 
And when he's after he finishes his section about running away, and he sort of just like runs away, like it's his default thing that he does. It was really effective, really good. I liked that, and that's uh, a testament to, you know, getting an actual actor in there, a good actor, um, to do these shows, and not somebody uh, that's musical theater season who uh, thinks they know what acting is. God, that's judgmental. But whatever. So Montego Glover played the witch. She was good. She wasn't great. It's hard to live up to Bernadette Peters, uh, but she was good. The funny thing is, like, the witch in this version is set up to sort of not be the star. Um, you know, this is based on the Broadway version where Sarah Bareilles played the baker's wife. And the baker's wife is kind of the star of this version. And I have some thoughts about that. That's This is my biggest takeaway, okay? Because I was in the lobby. They have a big blown up article of the LA Times with a review of the show. And it talks at length about the fact that the actors playing the baker and the baker's wife are married in real life. So I'm like, okay, that's interesting. I am not familiar with them. Uh, Stephanie J. Block and Sebastian Arcellis. So I think in the Into the Woods episode, I said, um, the thing about the baker and the baker's wife is that you love them. Um, you relate to them. And I have not I cannot think of a production of Into the Woods where I didn't love the baker and the baker's wife. So it must be hard to fuck that up. Now they kind of fucked that up. And I think I know what happened. And uh you know, if they need if they want me to come in as play doctor, I'm happy to do that. I do know how to play doctor. <laughs> how you doing? <laughs> Just kidding. So the baker, let's talk we we'll start with the baker. He seemed too normal. Like, I know that he's supposed to be, like, the everyman here, but he just he seemed like a, a dude in his late 40s, early 50s that goes to the gym. And, you know, I love, of course, Chip Zine, the original, because he's just this anxiety-ridden little squirrel. It's the witch from next door! And he's just always freaking out. I even like the that uh, union-busting prick, James Corden, in the movie. I thought he was really good. This guy, yeah, just too fucking ordinary, too normal, too general, didn't have a lot going on. I think, like I said, the baker's wife is meant to be the star of the show. I think there's a problem when the baker's wife has star power. And this person, this Stephanie J. Block, uh, definitely had that. You know, there's an applause break when you first see her. She, uh, well, I guess you see everyone at the same time, so that doesn't make sense. But, uh, like, the audience was eating up everything she said. It seemed like she was trying to do the thing that Little Red and the Prince were doing, but unsuccessfully, which was just... It's like she was trying to put special sauce on every single line and make it her own and make it current. And it was a little too emotive, too silly, and exhausting. And sort of ruined the baker's wife status as straight woman. Because she kept mugging. She's And I think this is the real issue. She's like a musical theater person. It's like a musical theater person's idea of what's funny. They seem like a musical theater couple, like on all the time. And oh, 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 oh. like Rachel Bloom, to be honest, um, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And I know that I'm a misogynistic prick for not liking Crazy Ex-Girlfriend or Rachel Bloom, but I don't like either of those uh, entities. And I didn't see Rachel Bloom's other show. I heard it was good, didn't see it, uh, don't care to, because I didn't like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Also, uh, the baker's wife crying her eyes out during Witch's Lament, which is weird. Uh, didn't like that. That seemed like a little much. And her moments in the woods. 
you know, was ruined. Like I said, Sutton Foster did such a great job, um, which was a palate cleanse after this one. She was overcrowding the song with all this melodramatic feeling, especially that crucial line that makes the ore mean more than it did before. She really made a fucking meal of that line, and it was just, um, I don't know. You're doing too much, Stephanie. Calm the fuck down. Uh, but people, people love her in it. It's just my opinion. Take it or leave it. I'm going to recommend you leave it. I liked Milky White. They did a thing with Milky. You know, I, again, I didn't like the puppeteer standing there the whole time. But they, it was a happy medium between the original, which is just you got a paper mache cow. I don't know if it's paper mache, but you know what I mean. It's just like a cow that uh, stands there <laughs> with a drawn on face. And has little to no personality. And then uh, what the Roundabout Theater guys, is that what they were called? The ones that did it uh, a few years ago. They they had a dude play Milky White. Like just a dude with a bell around his neck. And he didn't say anything, but he kept sort of like reacting to stuff. And then his death was super melodramatic. This was like a nice happy medium between them. Because you could kind of see why Jack was affectionate towards this cow. and then But also it didn't the cow didn't upstage things. So that was good. Um, the end of The Last Midnight was weird. They did a thing with, like, big uh, wolf claws. Not wolf claws. Uh, witch claws. Um, which I guess presumably is the witch's mother coming back and punishing her the way she did then with the claws and the hunch and the boop, 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 boop. It just uh, seemed anticlimactic for, you know, whatever. The murder of Jack's mother was also weird. Because they played it really seriously, but she was on her feet. Like, she dies standing up. And they didn't change that, you know. If they were going to make it this really tragic moment, you could have, you know, let her take a seat first. <laughs> Anyhow, Into the Woods. I felt the same way about this as I felt about the Disney movie. Like, it's not my favorite iteration. I, there's lots of flaws, but I'm glad that it's out there. Because Into the Woods needs to stay alive for new, young audiences. And I can't expect... These fucking Gen Z kids to sit and watch a goddamn PBS filmed play of Into the Woods. So keep on keep on trucking uh, Into the Woods. Keep on reviving it. Keep on doing it. I will not be there for the love of Christ. I can't see it again. And uh, there you go. All right, I'm at uh, almost an hour here. Let me just briefly go through these Pasadena Playhouses things. So, weirdly enough, this was also called the Sondheim Celebration at the Pasadena Playhouse, meaning the entire season at the Pasadena Playhouse was uh, Sondheim stuff. Two full plays, a Sondheim concert uh, with Bernadette Peters, which happened in June. I did not see that. And uh, a couple other things. Sondheim it's himself, apparently, they had the idea before he died, and he signed off on it uh, before he died. So that's interesting. I didn't know that. I learned that today doing my quick research on it. Uh, right up until last February, I lived across the street from the Pasadena Playhouse. If you're not familiar with it, it's a historic theater in Los Angeles, in Pasadena, believe it or not. And uh, they, they do good stuff there from time to time. It's in a nice little part of town, the Playhouse District. So it was, uh, it was uh, a little night music uh, is the one that was most recent. Uh, maybe, what were that? May? Maybe in May? April? May? It was great for what it was. It was high budget, you know, a beautiful set, full orchestra, which is what you want. They didn't fuck with it 
which you know I, I always appreciate. Uh, they did a straightforward uh, revival and let the thing stand on its own. There were really only two big swings, like two big choices that set it apart. Um, and the one was that they did a cutesy thing with remote-controlled cars. Where um, when they're arriving, they have like uh, perspective-wise, like the people are downstage and then way upstage is like a tiny uh, version of the mansion in the country that's like looks to be far away. And then they have a remote-controlled car drive up to it. So it's like supposed to look like a car in the distance driving up to a house in the distance. And, you know, it got a big laugh. I laughed. I thought it was funny. It was weirdly out of place because uh, the rest of it was so straightforward. just like a costume drama. So that was the one big thing. The other big thing was they added this little moment of feminist revisionism with Charlotte at the end. Charlotte ends up with Carl Magnus Malcolm, which is uh, pretty unsatisfying because he's a bad guy. And Charlotte is, as we discussed, the best character in the whole show. She's very funny. But she's, like, in love with him and... He decides to, uh, he can't cheat on her anymore. So he's like, all right, uh, we end up together. <laughs> Congratulations to us. They, she punched him in the mouth at the end of this one. Which, you know, fine. It's, I mean, it's not uh, really enough. But uh, whatever. It's fine. The, uh, the cast was good. Um, in the starring roles, you got Meryl Dandridge and Michael Hayden as Desiree and Frank. I really liked them both. They were great. I really liked him. Uh, Michael Hayden, my aunt and uncle didn't like him, and actually someone else I worked with didn't like him. I really liked him because he played Frederick like a buffoon, like just an idiot, chucklehead, dope. <laughs> and I think what that does is it makes up for the creepiness of the Frederick situation, of the Frederick conundrum, which is we're supposed to uh, be caring about a protagonist that is, you know, old and just dated, uh, or just married a 18 year old and desperately wants to fuck her. This made him a fool. Like, oh, what's this guy doing? He's an idiot. He just married an 18 year old. Um, and he has a mustache and he's old. I, I thought that was uh, cool. And she was like really powerful and sexy and they had good chemistry. So hooray for Meryl Dandridge and Michael Hayden as Desiree and Frederick. Uh, you get the Sondheim on Adderall stamp of approval. Uh, as the old woman, they had uh, somebody called Jody Long. Uh, she was fine. Oh, it seemed too young, like a little too spry. I didn't believe that she was like an old woman infirmed uh, to a wheelchair. She was, uh, you know, seemed uh, too energetic and a little too, you know, middle-aged. They had an interesting take on her death. Like, she instead of sort of falling asleep, she choked her. She was like... <laughs> Which I think we talked about it in the Little Night Music episode. It's weird when little uh, Madame Armfeld dies because it kind of just seems like she's falling asleep. The little girl as Frederica was great. Her name is Makara Gamble. Really good uh, child actor there. Most of the other actors kind of got lost in the shuffle, honestly. Um, you know, they were fine. Uh, except for one. And, you know, I, I hesitate to name this person by name because, listen, I know a lot of musical theater people and uh, I, God forbid, I, a friend of a friend of a friend listens to this or this poor slob listens to it. But you know what? I, this guy was so bad that uh, something needs to be done about it. God, asshole. Uh, it was criminally bad. So this is the performance of Chase Del Rey as Henrik. Completely obnoxious. Um, doing an SNL character in the middle of a show that just is no one else is on that level. And I think it's a fucking cop-out move because Henrik is a hard part to play. 
you need to have these lyric tenor notes and you need to be able to play a cello. And this guy did not really have those notes and he could not really play a cello. And so he leaned on doing a really lame stereotype of a depressed young man. And it made me angry. And so fuck you, that guy, Chase Del Rey. And if you're a friend of Chase Del Rey, uh, please don't tell me that he's a nice guy and that I am mean for shitting on him. Uh, and if you are just Chase Del Rey and you're listening to this in the future, I'm probably dead and you probably had a better life than I did. And I never got cast in a show at the Pasadena Playhouse, so I'm punching up, right? That's okay to punch up. So take that. I'm punching you, you asshole. Do better, Henrik Chase Del Rey. Anyway, that's enough of that. Let's talk about the last show that we're going to talk about today, which was the Pasadena Playhouse's production of Sunday in the Park with George. Uh, it was good enough that I cried. Um, I've never actually had the opportunity to see a big, large-scale version of Sunday in the Park with George, except for, of course, that video of the original cast, Mandy and Bernie, Mandy Patinkin, Bernadette Peters. The weird thing about this one is, like, uh, this production of Sunday, it felt like they were strapped for cash and pressed for time. Like, they were rushing the show, and they were kind of nickel and diming it. They didn't do, um, like, the fly system with the set pieces and the trees coming, like, where he erases a tree and the tree disappears. Like, they had a uh, back, uh, digital backdrop of a sketchbook. And so, like, when he as he was sketching, you saw the things, and then you saw him erase it. And so, yeah, it wasn't as cool. I was disappointed. It was directed by James Lapine's niece, Sarna Lapine, who also directed the version in 2017, 2016, 2017, 2018, one of those, with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. Other than that, uh, it's business as usual. Uh, cast is good. We got Christina Alabado as Dot. Sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong. I liked her. And here's the thing. So this time it's not Bernadette Peters, but, and Bernadette Peters is great, but it added something interesting. It was interesting to see the show with Dot just being played by a regular hot young woman, you know, that it changed the, my perception of the story. Whereas Bernadette Peters is this sort of force of nature, larger than life uh, thing on the stage. Like, it's just, oh, it's just, it's, it's, it's Dot's, it's George's girlfriend and she's very pretty and he immortalizes her. And uh, she, she had a great voice. She's very talented. Um, as we know, she plays Marie in the second act. The actress that plays Dot plays Marie, the old woman, uh, a century later. And but they, they did a bizarre thing with the tempo and color and light where they, I, they again, they were pressed for time. So they made it way faster. Uh, and that kind of killed that song. So you didn't really get to see her uh, go for it with the old lady. I thought that Graham Phillips as George was not good. Just like our pal at the Hollywood Bowl, he had a Mandy Patinkin-like voice. You know, fine. Obviously not as good, but reminiscent. But he had, like, bad high school-level acting. Just, like, doing too much. Like, too gestury. And he seemed... He made George an asshole, like, but, like, a purposeful asshole. Whereas I think George is best played as, like, an addict. Like, someone who really wants to be nice and not an asshole, but he has to be an asshole because he can't help it because he has to finish the fucking hat. And that was missing here. Apparently, this guy was the lead in 13 on Broadway. You know, good for him. I like 13 on Broadway. I mean, I like, I like the musical 13, Jason Robert Brown. By the way, side note, um, up until uh, last Friday, I spent the last three weeks uh, directing an all-child uh, camp production of Matilda, the musical. And I enjoyed doing that very much. That's a great show, Matilda. Great songs. I enjoy uh, Tim Minchin and uh, the songs that he wrote for Matilda, most of them anyway. Um, 
So uh, there you go. I don't know why. What made me think of that? Oh, yeah. 13 kids. Broadway. Great. Somebody called Liz Larson played the mother. She was good. Um, she kind of oversang on the song Beautiful, which, uh, you know, is not really supposed to be a powerhouse uh, number. But I will tell you, there was a choice at the end of that song where I almost cried because uh, she's singing Sunday's Disappearing all the time. And then he goes, look. And usually I think that he sh like tells her to go look out at the tree or whatever. But this time he said, look, and he showed her his sketchbook. And then she said, you make it beautiful. And I was like, oh, fuck. That uh, tugged at my heartstrings a little bit. That made me feel things, guys. Um, and that's that's it. You know, that's all I have to say about any of that. That's all. Oh, we're just about an hour exactly. Perfect. Okay. Anyway, there we go. Just to check in. Just wanted to check in on you. Just wanted to tell you about the shows I saw. So, yeah, I want to keep podcasting like this in this format, uh, but I think I'm going to bail on both of my tentative ideas for season twos of Sondheim on Adderall. Uh, I guess the one idea I had was I was going to have like, guests that were like experts in the field of what the show was about that, was, that were not musical theater people. Like, for instance, talk to like a horror movie person about Sweeney Todd, talk to an artist about Sunday in the Park with George, talk to a marriage counselor about company. Uh, those are three examples. Uh, but I don't think I'm going to do that because, God, like, I, do, do, do I really have the time or the effort to book a guest and sit with a guest or even, like, have a Zoom with a fucking guest? <laughs> and then um, and then I was also going to maybe do episodes about those Sondheim shows that I didn't do. Let's go through them. What are they? I didn't do Do I Hear a Waltz. I didn't do Anyone Can Whistle. I didn't do Follies. I didn't do Pacific Overtures. And I didn't do Passion. I can't imagine I'm going to do any of that because who cares about those shows? Maybe Follies. I did hear uh, some clamoring for a Follies episode. But, uh, God. I think I'm done. I think I'm done with Sondheim. I may be done with Sondheim. I hate to say it. But, um... Uh, I... Uh, there is going to be more podcasting. Tune in soon for my next podcasting adventures. It's going to be musical theater related. Just not uh, Sondheim related. Oh, and also please check out Compassion Fatigue on Spotify and Apple Music. My new album, uh attention deficit spending or uh, follow me on TikTok at uh, Compassion Fatigue Songs we get some nice little snippets of these things and until then uh, and, you know watch this space guys for an announcement about my next podcasting venture uh, perpetual anticipation is good for the soul but it's bad for the heart sorry heart and you're welcome soul this is Chris Kerrigan, signing off. Sondheim on Adderall. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you at the theater.